Good morning, Hazelwood Baptist Church. This is the day the Lord has made. I will. Amen. It is a day to rejoice, isn't it? Serve a risen Savior. You know, we're just a few weeks away from the Christmas season, believe it or not. It's amazing, isn't it? That it just seems like we just had Christmas season just, uh, just a, a few weeks ago, and here it is upon us again. Uh, in fact, I was, we were watching TV last night, and uh, the Hallmark station's talking about next month starts their Christmas movies, and, and uh, you walk into some stores, they got their Christmas stuff up already. You know what's so amazing about this all? That it is such a wonderful time of the year because at Christmas and in Easter, all the CEOs come out. The uh, Christmas and Easter only people. <laughs> and they'll be here at the church and we're going we're gonna to worship all together. But this, this is an opportunity for us to begin in prayer that God would just bless us with, a, with an abundance of people who come to hear the word of God. And, you know, if, 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 there, if there's going to be a captive audience, let's, let's pray for that, that people come to hear the Word of God, not so we can just fill this auditorium with people, but we can fill the ears with, and the minds and the hearts with people with a message of Jesus Christ. So I'm excited about the, the next few months that are, that are going to be coming up on our calendar, and there's, there's much for us to do, and, and, uh, but we'll, we'll be sharing more about that as, as the days progress. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to the uh, third chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at the God's message to the church at Sardis. Beginning with verse 1, we'll read on through verse 6. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear what you have to say, Lord, not to just these seven churches uh, 2,000 years ago, but Lord, but to our church today, to us in particular. Uh, Father, we want to be obedient to your word. Give us direction in our lives. Father, give us, our, give us as a church direction as to where you would have us to travel, what journey you would take us on, Father. And may we be diligent to follow your will and your way. In Christ's name, amen. The number seven is often used in Scripture, and it symbolizes perfection. For instance, we read in verse 1 of our text, the seven spirits of God. Now, you know that the Holy Spirit is not seven persons, seven beings, but it speaks of that God's Spirit is, a, is perfect in every way. 
The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, not third in a matter of, of power or authority or an essence or a being, but there is Father, there is Son, there is Holy Spirit, the three persons of one blessed Trinity. Uh, all three persons, same power, nature, and substance, and essence. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. It's all about perfection. God does not settle for mediocrity or even excellence, but only absolute perfection. It, all of us, I assume, had attended school. But when you get a paperback and it says, excellent work. Well, you know, excellent is wonderful. Excellent is an A. You know, uh, my papers come back saying, oh, that's okay. But uh, excellent, is, excellent is a one. It's a, excellent is an A. But you know what? God does not settle for excellent. God is absolute. God settles only for absolute perfection. If you think that you will enter heaven because you are an excellent person, a good moral person that, that, that you give to different charities and, and uh, you're just uh, you know, the nicest neighbor that ever existed on the planet Earth. If you are the, the sum and substance of all that is good and moral, however, if you, if you fall short of perfection, you're not good enough for God. God desires and accepts only absolute perfection in everything. When he says that we are to be holy because he is holy, I have, I have news for you. And excuse my poor English, but ain't none of us going to be perfectly holy. But I will tell you this, there resides within us one who is absolutely holy. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he took your sins, he took my sins, and he took all our imperfections and he placed it in himself and bore our sins on the cross, bore God's wrath on Calvary's cross, so that we, believing and trusting in him for salvation, that we have been dwelling within us that hope of glory, who, as Paul says, is Jesus Christ. Paul says that it is Christ in you who is the hope of glory. So now we have been made perfect in Christ. We are crucified in Him. We are buried with Him. We are raised up together with Him. And we are raised up to walk in newness of life. You have within you the perfect life of Jesus Christ. But the church of Sardis saw itself as a great church. And in verse 1, God says to them, you have a name that you are alive. You think that you are alive. You think that you've got everything good going for you. That everything is just fine and dandy. He says, but notice the remainder of the verse. It says, but you are dead. Let me share with you a, uh, why a church can be considered dead. It is dead in the sense that it, it has sought to curry the favor of the world. It wants to be accepted and applauded by the world. It, it seeks to be loved by the world, supported by the world, protected by the world. If the world is to be our supplier and our protector, then we absolutely do not need God. 
If we are trusting in the world for our existence, if we have to go out into the world and have the world determine what kind of church that we need to be, if I have to go to the neighborhood and say, what kind of church do you think that we ought to be? We are going to get a world's view of what the church ought to look like. Why would we do that? The person that we need to go to and ask what kind of church ought we to be is the Lord and Savior himself. Lord, what kind of church do you want us to be? There's only one person that we need to ask, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We do not go to the world and ask the world what kind of church we ought to be, because I'll guarantee you we will end up looking like a worldly church. And we won't be a church at all. We'll just be a place for the world to meet in order to enjoy its own personal pleasures. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we see the dangers that are addressed and the warning given that, that we as Christians are, 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 are not to engage ourselves in our love for the world. Now understand that, that the Bible speaks of the world in passages such as 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Uh, when he speaks of the sense of world there, it, it is not referring to the world in the matter of people. I'm not talking about people, but rather it is addressing the, the, uh, the idea of the world in a sense of a system that opposes God. The world opposes God. The world wants to become your savior. The world wants to become your sustainer. The world wants to become your protector. The world wants to become your supplier. The world wants to meet your needs. It wants you, the church, to look like it. Because the world has its heart and its mind set opposed to the things of God. Not the world of people, but the world of ideas. The world of culture. The world that, that, that not just engages the church, but the world that opposes the church. We don't want to look like that. The reason for the world being opposed to God is due to the fact that Satan himself is the ruler of this world system, and therefore it just opposes God. Satan seeks to draw our affection away from Christ and establish a priority of worship which stands in opposition to God's commands. And what is God's first command? You shall have no other gods before me. You see, now we have a contradiction right there. If the world is, becomes our supplier, if the world becomes our sustainer and our protector, then the world wants to tell the church that we need to bow down before, that we will have the world as our God. And we will embrace and engage ourselves in a system that opposes what God says. And that's why we even find even today that there is opposition into, the, into some issues of Scripture. They say, well, you know, that, that is just hatred. That some parts of Scripture are just hatred. Folks, it's not hatred. There is nothing that says God hates these particular people or those particular people or that ethnicity or that culture or that, or that nation. God doesn't say that. It says God so loved the world that without distinction, God looks at the world without distinction and says, I love all these people. However, there's another issue at hand over here. 
And the issue is this, when the scripture talks about loving the world, that we will then therefore bow down to what the world says, that we, how we ought to conduct ourselves when it comes to worship. That we will align ourselves with a system that is opposed to God, that, that opposes the things that are in Scripture that seem to, 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 to send a message to others that what is found in Scripture is opposite of what the world teaches. Now, we as a church need to come to a, a, a determination on our own hearts and minds. Whom are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the God of this Bible? That for thousands of years, for thousands of years, has been the God who has, who has worked in churches, who has worked in individual lives, who has brought people out of the gutter into the gates of glory? Are we going to follow that God? Or are we going to follow a God who opposes that which is holy? Whom are we going to follow? Joshua, in speaking to the people of Israel, says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Folks, you today decide, whom will you serve? Will you serve the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God who sustains you? Will you serve the God who redeems you? Will you serve him? Or will you serve the God of this world who stands in opposition to what God's word has to say? Whom will you serve? You choose today. Let it be clear in your mind and your heart today whom you will serve. Not only does the world as an ally of Satan promote and permit us to establish an erroneous and sinful priority, but it also is guilty of the following positions. And you'll find these positions, by the way, and, and you don't need to turn there, but let me, give you, let me give you the address in Scripture. If you will turn in... You can mark this down in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We'll not read those verses, but just remember that passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You'll find these, these things in there. It is those of the world, in verse 18, in verse 18, it is those of the world that suppress the truth. It is those of the world, in verses 19 and 20, that sees God's creation, yet denies that God is the creator. It is those of the world, in verse 21, who refuse to honor God. It is those of the world, verse 22, who are called foolish. It is those of the world, in verse 23, that distort the glory of God. It is those of the world, in verse 24, who live in the lust of their hearts. It is those of the world, in verse 25, who reject God and refuse to worship Him. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve God or you serve the world? But whom will you serve? And so here we have the church at Sardis, who like Demas had fallen in love with the world. And why? Because of the world's influence because of its pleasures, because of its lust for self-love and self-service. Now look at verse 2 of our text. It says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Jesus says, Wake up, wake up, for I have not found your deeds completed. Church, 
wake up. When you hear someone say, wake up, it has the meaning of being vigilant. The need to become alert to the things that really matter. We have somehow managed to make the important things urgent. What we believe to be important, we have made those things to be urgent. And when we find things to be urgent, we, then we rush to those things and say, we need to take care of this. But what are, the, what are the important things to us? Are the important things to us things that the world considers important? Are the important things to us that, that we minister to a particular group of people and exclude this other group of people? Are those the important things? Are the important things to us the way that we, that we style our worship rather than looking at the substance of worship? Is that the important? Whatever we find to be the important things, we make those to be the urgent things. What needs to become important to us is what Scripture has to say. That that should be the important thing following the pattern and dictates of Scripture, the precepts of Scripture. When that becomes the important thing, it will become the urgent thing. Wake up, for I have not found your deeds completed. There are times we allow ourselves to get caught up in things that have little or no significance. How often do we think of church as a place to go that will hopefully help me to cope with my day-to-day existence? Isn't it amazing? People will come to church and say, well, I need to find out how to manage my life. Listen, that's not what we do. This is a church. What would you expect to find in church? I would hope that when people come to church that the thing that they expect to find is a hearing of the Word of God. Not how am, I going to, how am I going to cope with my boss at work. We don't do that stuff. That is like, that's like going to a garage and saying, can you fix me a s'mores? You need to go to a chef, not a mechanic. Folks, please understand that the church has not been set up to be a psychological answer to life's problems. It just isn't what we do. I believe the church would fare a lot better if we were to... Four things that church ought to be doing. Number one, trust God. Boy, that's a hard one. Just trust God. Number two, if you're going to trust Him, you might as well obey Him. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Isn't that the way the song goes? Trust God, obey God. Number three, give glory to God. What is the chief aim of man? To glorify God and do what? And to enjoy Him forever. You know, we've got people that sometimes just don't know how to enjoy God. We walk around like... I'm a Christian. Wouldn't you want to be one too? You look at that person like, heavens, no, I don't want to be like that. There's, there's no joy. Have you ever thought about the fact that when we die, and we will, that you're going to go to heaven? 
You're going to be with God. That Jesus is up there preparing a place for you. He's, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You ought to be happy that God's up there preparing a place for you. I bet Jesus was a great carpenter. And he's up, he's up fixing a home for me right now. I'm, not, I'm, I'm hoping he's not ready to hand me the keys just yet. You know, I'm kind of thinking maybe he's just got the trusses up. <laughs> and a fourth thing. We need to worship God. Do you enjoy worship? And you ought to. It just blows my mind. I would lose my hair. (laughs) If I could. People come to worship and they say, you know, I'm just not getting anything out of this. They've not come to the realization that it's, it's not about you or me. You know, what we hear and what we see is not supposed to be a reflection of what we think about you. You know, that we style a worship in order to minister to you. That's not what worship is. Worship is directed to only one person, isn't it? And it's not to you or it's not to me. But it's to our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. Now that I've said that, let me say this. If, if we did those things, trust God, obey God, give God glory and worship, if we did those things, I believe we would have a, a whole lot less of life's problems to deal with. Listen to these words. You know, people say, Pastor, I just, I'm just not getting any peace. You know, the Bible has something to say about peace and rest and just relax, you know. Sometimes we just need to, as they say, just need to chill. Isaiah 26.3. Have you ever gone to bed at night and you can't sleep and you say, oh. Listen, mem- mem- this is a verse you can memorize. Memorize this verse. Isaiah 26.3. The steadfast mind... The steadfast of mind, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That person trusts in God. And and Isaiah is saying, you'll keep that person in perfect peace. The church in all aspects exists to please God. Its authority is derived only from Christ. Its work is Christ's work. Its gospel is Christ's gospel. The church is to judge itself and shall one day ultimately be judged by God. Christ is our head. We are the body. I grew up uh, a short distance from the city of Pittsburgh. That great baseball team. Short distance from the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I love living there. Uh, steel mills and, you know, that, that, that soot that would just fall over the city. You know, people say, oh, it's dirty and it's like, it smells terrible. Uh, you know, if you worked in a steel mill, it smelled, looked like money to those people. But anyway, living in this community near Pittsburgh, and, and certainly you would not call that country. However, even though I didn't grow up in a country, 
we did have somewhat of a country flavor thanks to our neighbor, one of our neighbors. They had, uh, one of our neighbors had several chickens. And every now and then it would be time for the sacrificial meal. In a way, I suppose, you might say that the church is a lot, is a lot like a chicken. Without a head, it won't go far. And without a head, it has no direction. It, like a hairless chicken, is just plain dead. The body is still there. But there's no head. The church can still be there. But without a head, it's just dead. In his book entitled, Iceberg Dead Ahead, Dr. Gregory Frizzell writes, Over the past century, much preaching moved away from proclaiming sound spiritual, uh, scriptural theology, biblical grace, a high view of God, hallowing his name, sin's accountability, and strong expository, expository preaching of God's whole counsel. In essence, many have sought to create a God in their own image. The subtle attitude is to have God serve us rather than us serve God. This was the problem with Sardis. They were so attached to the world and its ways that they used the techniques of the world to achieve their goals. I don't want to look, act, and think like the world in order for this church to thrive and survive. Do you? Is that, is that what we want? I, I don't think so. And all the while, Sardis was supposing that God was pleased with their efforts. In John 16, Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So we might look at this verse and, and, and see the, the positive side of it. We see it as Christ's promise that through him we've overcome the world. That's the positive side of it. Now to be sure, we through Christ are overcomers. As Christians, you are an overcomer. But let's not be too quick to neglect the negative side of this verse where he says, in the world you have tribulation. That's the negative part. That's the downside of it. And that, may, and that my friends, is the, is the big part of the problem. The church needs to get, to get out of the world and get out into the world as a witness for Jesus Christ. Get out of the world, but we need to get into the world as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Shortly, I mean shortly, within weeks, we are going to have an opportunity to come together as a church, and we're going to look at the possibilities of using a tract to engage our world. I'm looking at the possibility of, of using you and myself to be witnesses into this world that we live in. Not that we can become like the world, but the world 
can get into the body through the use of friendship evangelism. And I'm going to be asking many of you, or all of you, as many as we can possibly get, to be part of a group that will, be, that will effectively, effectively engage our world. I want you to be a part of that. I will work with you. We'll work with each other. Because I don't think that any of us are absolutely top-notch people. Unless, if you are, brother, I'd, sister, I'd love to meet you. If you're just absolutely top-notch as a witness. I do not think that the church at Sardis thought or intended to be a church that would dishonor the Lord. When we come face to face with real genuine discipleship, as we find in Luke 9.23, where we are to deny ourselves, bear our cross, follow Christ, it means that you and I are to run head, headlong into a collision course with the world. Sardis, Sardis had no intent of being anything different than that. But they, but they were. What they did was to find life a lot more comfortable running with the world rather than running against it by being a witness for the Lord. You see, here's the thing, folks. If we are going to be Christ's witnesses, you're going to oppose the standard of the world. Are you, are you willing, are you ready to do that? You want, you want to change? You want to change what, it, what our little world looks like? Well, let's not go out and try to change people's minds. Let's go out and try to see that God changes their hearts. Jesus told the church at Sardis, Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, in verse 3. Now, Jesus is not talking about the rapture of the church. This has nothing to do with the rapture. I believe that's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime or not. I know this, we're a day closer today than we were yesterday. So it's not about the rapture of the church. It's more like the opposite of that. He is saying that, what he's saying is this, if you don't get your act together, if you don't, church, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to personally take you out. Simply stated, it says this, church, you're done. Think about that. Church, you're done. You refuse to do what I say. You want to do it your way. You want to follow the, the dictates and the mandates and the precepts of the world. Go ahead, but over the doors, I've written Ichabod, you're done. And he said he'll do that. But there were still, in Sardis, there were still some, some good news for those folks in Sardis that were some, there were some of those who remained as faithful followers to the, of the Lord. And, and to those, the Lord says, I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. This is not a, 
a, a, a, a verse to look at as saying that God's going to erase our name from the book of life. It's a, it's a verse of promise. God's saying to people who are faithful, who will follow him, he says, I will never erase your name. Never erase your name. A verse of promise to those who are faithful. A promise that God will never take our names out of his book of life. It is his promise to you who've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. As you trust Jesus Christ as being your Savior and Lord, you're the one who overcomes. Verse 5, you're the overcomer because you've trusted in him. You are the one who is clothed in white garments. In verse 5, you are the one whom Christ will confess before his Father in verse 5. That's you, the Christian, the faithful follower of Jesus. But my friend, maybe you are seated here today and you are not a follower of Jesus. What are the prospects for you who are without Christ? Jesus takes, talks of a place that there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He talks of a place where there will be hell's fire and torment. Isaiah, in, in his book, speaks of that place where the worm never dies, that your cover will be a cover of maggots. Is that really impressive to you? I hear people making jocular comments and saying, well, I don't mind going to hell because that's where all my friends will be. Folks, you won't recognize your friends. There's just a, a fearful, terrifying prospect that you'll enter into this abode of death and separation from God, and you'll be in the presence of Satan and his demons. You'll not be thinking about your friends. My friend, today, as God speaks to your heart through His Holy Spirit, I cannot, I cannot convince you or convict you. I cannot convert you. This church cannot do those things either. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can not just clean your heart up, but change your heart. Create a new heart in you. Instead of a heart of stone, you'll have a heart of spiritual flesh. You become partakers of a new divine nature, which God will give you. I cannot do that. This church cannot do that. Our denomination cannot do that. There's nothing, there's no power on this earth can do that. But God alone can do that, and he will do that. Will you today confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? He died for you. He bore God's wrath for you. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into glory, and he becomes, in glory, becomes your advocate, your intercessor, your mediator. He becomes your high priest. Will you today acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? As we have this time of response, as the Holy Spirit deals with your heart, and now you, in, in, with repentant heart and faith, will you, with repentant heart and faith, say, Jesus, I acknowledge you today as my Savior. What we'd like for you to do is please come forward. We want to rejoice with you and celebrate with you what a wonderful thing God has done in your life. 
Would you do that today? Perhaps you're here today, say, Preacher, I know that Jesus Christ is my Lord, my Savior, but I'm looking for a home church. I need a church to be a place where I could be, where I could be settled and satisfied in, where I know that I will hear the Word of God. I will hear the Bible preached. I will hear the Bible taught, that I can be with other believers who believe as I do that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I want to be faithful to Him. As God speaks to your heart, would you this day please come forward that, that, we might, that we might do with you, we might do with you as God is doing in heaven, that we would celebrate with you of what a wonderful thing God has done in your life.